podcast. My name is James. And I'm CJ. And this is the only podcast where we've still got that program where three people have to live with a bear. Oh, bear with me. I love that one. <laughs> Yay. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, it's me. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival. And this week, we take a look at episodes 12 and 13, the finale, Bad Wolf and the Parting of the Ways. But first of all, how are you? Oh, look, I am crushing it. It is 7pm on a Tuesday. This is not our usual recording time at all. So our energy is all out of sorts. But It is the finale of season one. We have officially made it through a full season of Doctor Who. Yeah, so I think round of applause to us, everyone. Yeah, look, it's been a, it's been a, 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 I was going to say a rough ride to go here, but actually it's been quite easy. Um, But thank you, dear listener, for sticking with us through to the end of season one. Um, We've had a real good time. Yeah, we absolutely have. I I think it's been a definite re-education on maybe what we thought we loved about this season, but I'm glad that everyone's stuck with us through it. So, yeah. Yeah. The re-education stuff, especially, I feel like, I feel like you have had, didn't have any kind of like preconceived notions of what to expect from this season, but I absolutely held it in such high esteem that it has been at times crushing to see the lows of this season. Um, But it's been, it's been an enjoyable ride nonetheless. Yes. I, I would agree with that. I have been frequently frustrated, but also still compelled to keep watching. So that's not nothing. Exactly. Um, I do want to apologize, uh, dear listener, because I am still recovering from a cold. So I might uh, sound a bit phlegmy and go (coughs) occasionally. Um, Please bear with me. Don't worry. It is not COVID officially tested. I've got the paperwork so (laughs) you can prove (laughs) it's not COVID. Um, But yeah, I might clear my throat. Just FYI. All right, good stuff. Before we dive into this very interesting finale, we actually have some Doctor Who news to cover this week, which is very exciting. <laughs> we do. And um, so obviously it's Pride Month at the moment, um, which we haven't really talked about too much uh, in the past. But from our perspective, we're recording on the very last day of June, um, which is the very last day of, of Pride Month. And a big piece of news that has kind of uh, skimmed past the wider universe's knowledge, um, notice, sorry, but to us is like amazing and lovely is Doctor Who star Pearl Mackey has come out as bisexual. And look, it's, it's a fitting time to talk about it. Last day of Pride Month for us to really get into this. And this is super exciting news because Pearl Mackey seems like the loveliest human being and her role on the show was really fantastic. And yes, she's basically gone onto Instagram and said, proud to be bisexual, proud to be black, proud of all my LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters and everyone in between. We matter, you matter, big love, enough respect, happy pride, everyone. And you just love to see it. It's just so good. And it's like, if you didn't love her already, you love her now. She's been very active <laughs> on her social medias about um, like Black Lives Matter and, and now with Pride, obviously, as well. So it's it's really good to see stars who, you know, maybe should have had like a longer run on the show. I think everybody mm. would have enjoyed a little bit more Bill. Um, and, and especially because she played a queer character on the show and, and such an openly queer character as well. Uh, so yeah, this is just a real feel good bit of news this week, which I think we could all do with right now. I agree. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've been quite down on the dumps when we do our little check-ins with each other, um, about the state of the world. So this is just like, right. We're right there when we needed it. In other news, uh, this is a couple of other items as well. David Tennant and Alex Kingston have been announced to be reuniting for some audio adventures, which I know a lot of the community is very excited about. I also am very excited about this. Um, but then it also, at the same time, it feels like every day there's a new 
big finish <laughs> announcement being made. So this is just one of a, a dozen of amazing, exciting upcoming projects from them. So it's really good to see. The last little bit of news, something that's been floating around the internet for a very long time, it feels, but it's only just now being picked up, which is the leaked images of the Dalek from this upcoming New Year's Day special. Yeah, and uh, just a a quick, I guess like the lightest of possible spoiler warnings. Uh, We'll include a link to the image in the show notes if you do want to pursue it yourselves. But we're going to have a quick chat about how we think this thing looks and maybe how it ties into some other things that we've seen in the show just for the next couple of minutes. So if you want to skip past that, just just jump ahead a tiny bit. Um, But with that said, uh, a recon Dalek looking all fancy and new. What were they thinking? Uh, look, I think it looks... <laughs> I mean, look, I am I am on the record as the Dalek should no longer exist in the show, but at least this is a different looking Dalek. Mm. It, that's the kindest thing you could have said. Um, it is definitely different looking. I am just... Uh, I I think I'm thinking about this design. So if, if you're visually impaired or you're not able to see this image, um, it's basically... They've, the design is, they've tried to make it look as, like, there's as little as possible that there could possibly be a human being inside of it. So there's, like, it's all kind of shrunk down and segmented, and um, it's got these fancy new panels on the bottom, these chunky little bits here and there. I'm still in two minds about it, because, like, in story turns, I'm just thinking, why would the Scrapyard Dalek from the last Christmas, uh, sorry, New Year's special now be immortalized as an actual Dalek design when that was just like a sort of put together bit of nothing. Uh, I think that's more just that the, when the Dalek in resolution restored itself from all the scrap metal, it was trying to as closely emulate its actual look. Uh, and so this is just now what the prime version of that set of armor for a Dalek would look like. Um, and you're right. It is, like the bottom of the Dalek remains kind of the same size. It's got some weird extra panels and lines on it that look very, uh, I don't know, early 2000s Xbox 360 kind <laughs> of design. It's not great. Um, but the top half is is much more condensed and, and squished in the middle. It looks like a Dalek wearing like a corset. Ha, that's a good assessment, actually. Yeah, it's all kind of squished in. And actually, the one thing I do actually and like about this design is how much it emphasizes um, movement. And you can see how those middle sections would move really fluidly. The head as well could do a 360, which other Dalek designs don't necessarily do. Um, so that's a positive. But then I'm looking at like the stubby little arms and the stubby like eye stalk, and it just looks wrong in spots. It's all, <laughs> yeah. It does. It's also worth noting though, that this leaked photo is a leaked photo. It's in broad daylight. It is mm. uh, clearly not the optimal viewing condition for a new Dalek suit, but... It is what it is. You folks can have a look at it if you would like. And that's, this is also, also isn't to say that it will be the design ongoing as well. Like it could just be a special for this uh, special <laughs> and then we never see it again. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, so I think without further ado, we are going to dive right into Bad Wolf and Parting of the Ways because there is a lot to get through this week. Launch missiles! We've got incoming! This is it, ladies and gentlemen, we are at war! There's an army about to invade this station. Defences have gone offline. I'm dead or about to die any second with no chance of escape. How did you survive the time war? 
Bad Wolf and The Parting of the Ways are episodes 12 and 13, respectively, of the 2005 Doctor Who revival. Directed by Joe Ahern and written by showrunner Russell T. Davies. This is the the two-parter that caps off uh, the season. It is... It's a big one. Uh, so we're going to try and breeze right through this plot stuff because I have written something up to... Can try to convey everything that happens here. It's not concise. It's, it's going to be wordy. It's going to be a mess, but we're going to get through it, folks. First of all, IMDb. Bad Wolf. The Doctor, Rose, and Jack are separated and forced to compete in twisted and deadly games on the game station. Sure. I mean, that's one part of the story. I mean, that is one part of the story. Uh, and for parting of the ways as the Dalek fleet begins their attack on the Earth, the Doctor and his allies make one final stand. That is the entire story. That's so, cool. I like that. Yeah. I like that yeah, one. It's clean, it's concise. But <clears throat> here we go, folks. All right. The Doctor, Rose, and Jack are teleported into reality TV shows, Big Brother, The Weakest Link, and What Not to Wear, respectively, and soon realize that losing the games means death. After the Doctor escapes the house with the new companion, Linda, he learns that they are, in fact, back on Satellite 5, the same space station feeding fake news to the human empire which he toppled way back in the long game. In the interim hundred years, things have gotten much worse, as Earth continues to collapse and morbid death games serve as entertainment for the masses. After meeting back up with Jack, the gang sets out to rescue Rose, but are too late, and she is seemingly killed just as they arrive. But... Of course, it turns out that she was just teleported across the galaxy to the base ship of the satellite's true owners, a wayward Dalek fleet helmed by the Dalek Emperor. Refugees from the Time War, this fleet has been reassembled using human flesh from the games and has been reshaped into a faith-based collective as the Emperor sees himself as the great creator. When the Doctor realizes he can rig up some kind of sonic boom thingy to wipe out the Daleks that will also wipe out humanity in the process. He sends Rose and the TARDIS back to present day and prepares for war. Rose refuses to sit around and do nothing, subsequently forcing open the console and staring into the heart of the TARDIS, becoming the Bad Wolf, a being of godlike power driven by her desire to save the Doctor. She flies the TARDIS back and destroys the Daleks, resurrecting a recently killed Jack in the process, and is about to burn out when the Doctor kisses her, absorbing the energy of the Time Vortex and triggering his own regeneration in the process. Whew. Fuck. That's a lot. That's a lot. That is a lot. So... CJ, what did you think of Bad Wolf and Parting of the Ways? This is the first one we've ever done where I've actually thought that we would have benefited from discussing them as separate episodes because I still love Parting of the Ways and still really hate a lot of Bad Wolf. Hate is a, is a very strong word, I know, and I should not say it that, like, lightly. But, God, I just... Ugh. There's a lot of it I don't like. There's a lot of it I don't like. Yeah, and a lot of it that really impacts on this, like, this overall success of this um, finale. And it is, I think, at, by and large, a successful finale um, for the show, but it it really brings down this story, Bad Wolf, in my opinion. Um, what about you? Yeah, I think we're pretty aligned on this one. Um, Bad Wolf... Uh, so, like, you've got, like, what... 70% of Bad Wolf is the fake game show stuff, right? Mm. 
And then the last 30% of it is the gearing up for the Dalek invasion. And because of that, you you lose a massive chunk of what should be an establishing world building plot building kind of episode for the two-parter to this kind of very, um, let's say, uh, lighthearted sort of like farcical little space adventure, right? Which I think, again, and this is something I've said to you earlier, but like on its own, is fine. I think if you do the Bad Wolf, uh, like Big Brother House stuff in a vacuum, you could have a really cute little filler episode. That's totally not a problem for me. Um, what is a problem is what you're saying, though, is that because it fails to establish anything really for Parting of the Ways, Parting of the Ways has to do so much heavy lifting and subsequently kind of does a disservice to a lot of really interesting ideas that had they been spread out across the two-parter, we could have had a good exploration of. Yeah, you're right. And and a lot of the sort of problems that I feel about the bad, the reality show sections of uh, Bad Wolf have to do with just the way in which they function in the story. Because like, what they're doing, like we've talked about this, is um, that the, the, the basic function of those games for the story is it's setting up the brutality of this future earth and that somebody is wholesale killing humanity and trying to hide it. Like those, that is basis uh, sort of description of what's happening with those games. It's just that they are presented as this like fun and flirty and funny kind of thing. And so the tone is all off. It really is all off uh, for most of that episode. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like the, the core concept is great. You know, a a future brutal earth killing off its citizens for fun, but it's just a bit too fun. I don't know. Is that even a thing? (laughs) Uh, I think the only one that you could say that about is, um, Jack's little side adventure in what not to wear. That one is primarily just goofy and fun until like the very last scene, basically. Mm. Um, Whereas, like, the Doctor stuff is at least somewhat sinister from the get-go because he is concerned about how he got zapped there. Uh, because, you know, the episode starts with him just being straight away dropped in, which mm-hmm. theoretically, you know, as he says, shouldn't be possible because nothing should be able to rip them out of the TARDIS like that. Which is cool. Um, and it's great. It sets up a really good mystery. That's it. It's a really great mystery. And I think anything that puts the Doctor technologically on the back foot is a great place to start a story, right? I don't think we disagree on that. But then... You're right. It's once he's in the house and it's kind of like, and Rose is on uh, the weakest link, you know, she's just kind of, for some reason, like, yeah, sure. I'll play whatever. It's cool, bro. Um, and so the whole thing is just very kind of like, well, laissez faire. Is that how it's said? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Rose, especially is a real, I think in bad wolf, she does, she's done dirty. She done real dirty. She is. She's done real dirty because like, it's, <laughs> She's on this, uh, you know, the weakest link panel, right? And then you've got the the robot at the centre of things asking all the questions and all of the other contestants are either, like, crying or shaking or, like, weirdly competitive. And Rose looks at all of this and she's like, ah, it's probably fine, don't worry about it. I won't ask anything. (laughs) Exactly. It's like she finds herself in this position of, like, of being stuck on this game where she could potentially die. And her, like, whole attitude is, first off, it's like, oh, I'm going to play to win. And then it's like, oh, you're all sick. And then she's just kind of, like, stuck. And we don't see any of the rows that I have, uh, that I know exists. The rows that, you know, is caring and um, would be, like, asking questions uh, or trying to figure out 
what's actually happening here. She's just like, I guess I've got to play this game and, and maybe die. Like, I don't know. She's just like so uninquisitive and helpless in this episode. And it, yes, oh, I agree. Yeah. I think there's only one moment of helplessness that really resonates with me with her. And I felt the same way when I watched this as a kid and watching it again now still brought up the same thing when she's kind of like, I think maybe it's just before somebody else is about to get shot or she's about to get disintegrated or something. And she's clutching at the station thing and she's like, no, no, where's the doctor? He wouldn't let this happen to me. I do think that's a, an effective moment of mm. a companion being all like, this makes absolutely no sense because he always saves me. Mm. Oh, that, know, whole, I, that whole moment from that, from there onwards really is where the episode really picks up. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Mm. Um, and we don't want to dwell too much on the, um, the, the game show stuff. It's... I don't really want to talk about it much at all, to be honest. It's It sets up, basically, everything that is good about this, just in a really dumb way. Uh, I guess the only notable thing with this portion of the episode is that the Doctor meets Linda with a Y. Yeah. Let's talk about Linda with a Y. <laughs> well, there's not much to talk about necessarily with Linda with a Y. I think she represents some interesting stuff and she obviously plays a a role in, in things in the next episode. Hmm. Um, but what's most notable, and you've, you've got this in the show notes, is how eager he is to offer her a spot on the TARDIS just like straight away. It is. And it's odd because uh, when I think back about this season, the one thing that always sticks in my brain is how the Doctor starts as a very distant, cold figure that, you know, for him to take Rose on board the TARDIS is not a light decision. Like, he, it's obvious that he hasn't travelled with anyone in such a long time. And I, I like the idea that, you know, through the season, Rose has softened and, you know, he's come out of his shell um, enough that he would just offer such a lucrative spot to anyone. That's good. It's just that I don't, I'm not sure that the episode kind of earns that moment shall we say yeah it, it feels like it's just one of the many dominoes that is set up and it's just kind of left standing there by the end of everything um mm. because this is, and this is a much bigger point that we're going to get to sort of a bit later in the episode but um the the main issue i think with with bad wolf and parting of the ways is that there are so many different directions it could run in that could be quite interesting and then it ultimately just kind of dabbles in each but never really it, um invests in anything it never sinks its teeth into any one of its questions hmm. um and linda with a y is one of them and the other one is i guess like the core revelation of bad wolf which is that after the events of the long game where the doctor came in and blew up the mighty jagrafest and stopped the the spread of misinformation in the human empire that was a a perceived catalyst point for things getting even worse Yes. And then you have that, that scene where the doctor, you know, looks out on this ruined earth and Linda says, you know, the news channel shut down overnight and the government's collapsed and the banks collapse and, you know, everything just fell apart. And he goes, oh, I made this world. And you're like, well, <laughs> like, well, uh, no. I'm not quite sure that you did. <laughs> yeah. And when, when we say that we, it's because, so the, the, the long game implies that there's somebody else behind the scenes of the people who are behind the scenes. And this earth was, yeah, it's always kind of implied that this earth was always going to be made in such a way to suit the Daleks plan uh, in this episode. So you, the idea that the doctor 
internalizes the idea that he has created this world. Um, I'm not sure that moment's earned, but also that's kind of the only moment when it deals with that. And then it kind of brushes it aside and we never pick it up again. Yeah. And it's especially bad because this dovetails out of the moral questions of Boomtown, which, you know, you've got a a character very much explicitly saying to the doctor, oh, you don't stick around after you drop your bombs. You just kind of, you you piss off again and whatever happens, happens. And then to come into this story, which is ostensibly tackling that issue head on, like it is giving him a situation that says, hey, you came in, you thought you did the right thing, but you actually fucked up. And because of that, you've made a much worse world is a great jumping off point for a story. But one, Bad Wolf is way too concerned with its game show parody stuff to get into it enough to feel satisfying. And two, the problem with the revelation of the end of Bad Wolf that, you know, it was like this wayward Dalek empire that has been um, sort of guiding humanity for hundreds of years now is that there's a predetermined nature to the 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 human empire right mm. because you've got something as big and evil and grand as the daleks and the shadows pulling the strings you can't say that like oh well it was the doctor trying to help that was the problem it's like no like there was never a power vacuum because it was always just the same evil behind it the whole time exactly. and so it's just kind of like it just takes the wind out of the sails a little bit and and to the episode's point then it doesn't try to address it again and i, th- I wonder if that's maybe because they realized halfway along the way through writing it like does this make much sense <laughs> I think, yeah, it just goes back to what you were saying about how this is, these two episodes are just trying to pull in so many different directions. And then, and the direction it does go into in Parting of the Ways is the most successful element. And I'm really glad that they did go in that direction. But then this, this particular episode sets up a whole bunch of other stuff about the world that the doctors dropped into. um, And it doesn't pay off and it's not like followed up on. Um, And I find that really frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. My issue with Bad Wolf is the same as my issue with The Long Game, um, which is that it's, again, it's kind of like the aesthetics of world building without any actual effort put into the concepts and themes behind what he's doing here. And at least in The Long Game, we had, like, I know at the time, like, we we kind of shut all over the whole showing us uh, a world and a political view through a food court, but at least that was an attempt at something. Mm. Um with Bad Wolf, once they're outside of the, the game recording studios, it's just blank metal corridors. Like, there's nothing going on there. Um, and I think that could almost work as a commentary on the idea that, you know, humanity's sort of gotten to this point of homogenization and uh, dehumanization, that they are starting to sort of emulate the style of a Dalek in, in their interiors, or that there's something there, maybe. But that is a huge amount of heavy lifting on my part. Yeah. The show does nothing to, to support. I wouldn't say that that's even remotely what they're doing here, but that's a nice well, uh, bit of uh, conjecture. Well, I'm just trying to do something to sort of like <laughs> understand what's going on with Bad Wolf totally. because there is so much in the parting of the ways that is like, and, and listeners, if you've been listening to us this whole season, there's a lot in parting of the ways that I am going to specifically adore. And so to have Bad Wolf come in and just kind of be like, ooh, it's like a fun little adventure. And then, bleh, I, I don't know. I, I really... We don't love that. We don't. We do not love Bad Wolf. <laughs> uh, well, here's the thing. I don't love, as you said, seventy percent of it. But yes, the last ten or so minutes, from the moment that you pointed out when they realise Rose is in with the android, and the, there's the like the mounting tension over getting to Rose. That's when the episode really clicks into place, um, because you have this. Suddenly this wonderful uh, 
kind of moment with Rose that I think is meant to mirror their initial like first scene, right? With um, actually, you get a lot of you get two mirrors in this episode of that first moment where Rose and the Doctor meet with the hand holding and the running because you get Linda with a Y and the Doctor like saying "Come with me" and holding out his hand. You get that really nice shot of him down the corridor. Um, but then also here you have that same moment of them running towards one another and reaching out for one another. But this time Rose gets zapped. And it's even now, I think it's like one of the most affecting like twists. I'm using air quotes, obviously you can't say um, twists uh, in the show just because it feels it's like distinctly fresh and exciting. I don't know. What are your feelings? Uh, I think, yes, if it had had the conviction to maintain the idea that she was dead right up until the beginning of the next episode. But, like, it's not really much of a cliffhanger because by the time we wrap up Bad Wolf, we already know that she's not dead. And I, I actually don't have a problem with that because it leads into the one of the best cliffhangers of all time, <laughs> uh, which is the oh. Doctor saying, I'm coming to get you. And I feel like you're about to say something to the negative of that. No, no, look, I, I just... I. I just kind of feel nothing for it. Like it's, it's a nice moment, but again, it just, it, it's just a personal preference in how stories are told. Basically. Um, I, I think that by having that be your cliffhanger, as opposed to like a genuinely defeated doctor who you can see sort of reverting back to his colder elements because she's dead. It's so funny, um, it's so funny you say that because ordinarily I'd agree with you, but like why I love that uh, cliffhanger so much is it's just like, so this season has been very much characterized by the doctor not taking an active role. They are, they, they are an inspirational figure at times who inspires other people to do the right thing and to save the day. Um, or in the very rare instance where they do actually have an active role in Stephen Moffat's two-parter, um, there's still somebody else in that story, uh, who actually saves the day, quote unquote. But this one is the doctor actually taking a stand and saying, no, no, you're not going to do that because this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rescue her. And it, oh, I, my hands are like clenched in fists right now as I'm talking about it because I'm just so excited about it. Um, I can't deny the power of that supremely positive uh, ending. And when he says, I'm coming to get you and like zaps the screenshot, I almost feel like that's when the title should have gone after that because that would have just been like such a fist in the air moment. But then you get yeah. all the, you know, Daleks and, oh, it's Daleks. Oh. Um. Mm, it is, it is Daleks. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, and look, that does lead us at least into Parting of the Ways, which is the meat of this conversation anyway. Mm. Um. Oh, well, we should, I mean, you know, there are like, there are some good elements to Bad Wolf. I mean, you and I have both talked about how we like at least the robot designs um, for the android and Trini and Susanna. Oh yeah, I mean, like I, I, and that's the thing. It, the game show stuff in a vacuum, I actually, I really enjoyed. Um, and I know that that's odd because I hate fun, but <laughs> I did think they were kind of genuinely funny. And um, I mean, look, it's not as if like, it's a particularly unique bend on, on something. Even back in two thousand and five, the idea of like, oh, it's subversive because what if reality TV sh- TV shows were actually bad for people? Like, yeah, like <laughs> we get it. You know, rage against that machine, Russell. But like. <laughs> I, and I do enjoy it in a, in a vacuum. Um, so yeah, like good robot designs, funny jokes, good acting. I like that the trio is separated. And so they have to sort of individually deal with their situations that didn't work out so well for Rose's characterization, but it worked out really well for the doctor and Jack gets to be 
a, a himbo again, you know, which is <laughs> which is great. Yes, yes, I will say that that scene where he gets defabricated is something that I childhood me uh, definitely pondered over for a very very long time. Oh, that's it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, like parting of the ways, more like part my ways, Jack. Ooh. I'm not leaving that in. <laughs> no, you're keeping that in. You are hundred percent keeping that in. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And the whole, like, you know, there's like that quick scene of um, him pulling the blaster out of his ass. And it's like, I mean, sure. <laughs> it's inoffensive. Uh, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, like, I, I could maybe make a point against it, but I just, Bad Wolf is not worthy of that much. So <laughs> let's just move right along then. Party of the Ways opens with maybe hands down um, my favorite iteration of the Dalek concept. Uh, and this is despite me thinking that they shouldn't be here at all. I don't like that they're the ultimate antagonist of the series, but the core concept of a group of Daleks that were essentially thrown out of time and space because of the time war. And then they end up somewhere and their leader basically convinces himself that he is a God. He, he says, you know, I reached into the dirt and I created new life. He builds up an armada of new Daleks using recycled human flesh. And so because of that, like we saw in the Dalek specific episode that has a particular effect on their DNA. It changes their ideology, the way that they can think and feel different things. And so because of that, they have collectively developed faith. And I think the concept of a killing machine that does develop emotions, but those emotions turn out to be just something that reinforces the killing is a fantastic starting off point. Um, agreed. And, um, yeah, I mean the emperor, the emperor Dalek being back feels like I feel like at the time just um, you know upping the ante basically, um, which is funny in a story that also features an army of Daleks. I feel like you've upped it, you've upped it significantly already, um, so that just adds a, an extra element, really. Um, yeah. So did you just say that the Dalek Emperor is back? Yes, the Dalek Emperor was uh, in. The Evil of the Daleks, which is, <laughs> this is a nice little bit of trivia. The, at 1960 uh, story uh, with Patrick Troughton, that was supposed to be the final end of the Daleks. Oh, okay. Mm. And then they came oh. back because uh, they were just too lucrative. Well, that's it. Yeah. Gotta, gotta, gotta get gotta those dollars. <laughs> Um, but then I think they, the, the, the emperor went on to have another, like another life in the comics and spin-off media, um, often depicted with like a massive, uh, head. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Not exactly the megalomaniac that we see here on screen, but just like a normal Dalek with just like a big old head. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I much prefer what they've done here. Mm. Um, I think it is one of the more successful parts of Parting of the Ways, uh, just because, Again, it's just really good to see at least a new take on the Daleks. Um, my only gripe with it, and this is a small one, but still, this is, this is our show. We can talk about it. Um, I didn't love that it was presented as another scene where the Doctor gets to go, oh, they've gone insane. Like, ugh, we've done that concept already. Like, the Dalek in Dalek actually went insane, and that was interesting and fun, and we, we all enjoyed that little story, right? But I think if you're going to do this kind of a big swing of like faith-based Dalek armada, 
have them actually be of sound mind. Don't don't make it into sort of like another echo of that story. Because I think if you stand mm. behind that concept with your, you know, push it out with your full chest, you have a much more interesting story. And this is unfortunately one of the many directions that the show chooses not to run in for this episode. And it just, it breaks my heart. Mm. Yeah, it feels like a, like a, just a fallback kind of phrase to use. So, you know, they've gone insane. Like, okay, we get it. Um, especially when you consider that, like, I think in the past, like, Daleks are always kind of depicted as a little bit insane. That's the point of them, you know, because they're trapped in a, in a little, in a box their whole lives and they're mutated and, um, you know, loathe themselves um, at the same time as trying to kill everyone who doesn't look like them. Like, that's their core identity. So to say they're insane is just redundant. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't. I did. Did not much care for that. Um, what I did like, though, is that you take the um, cliffhanger ending from Bad Wolf of, of Rose being trapped, and then you pretty much deal with that within what five minutes. Yeah, it's great. It's really thrilling. It's such a good way to start the episode. It definitely is. Um, and then you know, come in. They they grab Rose. Um, the Doctor and the Emperor Dalek have a really good exchange about everything that we just talked about. And they get back in the TARDIS and there's one of my favorite moments is um, all the Daleks outside of the TARDIS are obviously all, you know, hyped up and trying to kill him and whatnot. And so they get back into the TARDIS, closes the door. Um, the doctor leans his head against the door while he can hear all of them outside, you know, saying exterminate, exterminate, exterminate. And one, it's already just a powerful image enough on its own. But it was also the first time that I noticed that the interior walls of this particular TARDIS look kind of like the bottom half of a Dalek, like with the kind of, you know, smooth surface and then all the, the circles and stuff. And that is obviously a recurring image within Doctor Who itself and within the TARDIS. Uh, I just thought in this particular moment, there was a nice, even unintentional uh, sort of link made there in terms of how much these two races, like Time Lords and Daleks, have damaged each other and how much this particular time lord and those particular daleks um ha have so much in common from the war that's a really nice observation and i feel like you're um giving credit where it's not due because i don't know if that was entirely intentional but i like your interpretation nonetheless so here's the thing here's the thing that i really want to get into i on watching this story came up with a a theory shall we say i don't like that word i don't think it's what i'm doing here but um it feels appropriate nonetheless that this story in some way is meant to function as a representation of what the last day of the time war must have been for the doctor without showing the time war. And the reason why I think that is because it hasn't like escaped my notion, my notice, sorry, that the doctor in this story is building a weapon that's going to wipe out Daleks and humans alike, everyone. He, like, he's literally standing there with the plunger, like, ready to push it down and kill everyone. He's alone. His friends are either dead or gone. Um, there's an army of Daleks surrounding him at all sides by the end of the story. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and for that to be the core concept of this story, I think is tremendous and really, really good work paying off the time war and this particular doctor as well. And to me stands as a really fantastic and like necessary reason for the Daleks to be here. Cause I know you have your problems with them and their recurring like recurrence. Um, 
but it just, yeah, when I started thinking about the story in those terms, it really clicked into place for me. Uh, I do like that theory, and I know you don't like that word, but that's what we're going to run with here. Um, And I think it's also interesting because it does mirror the choice that he has to make at the end of the actual time war, which we only learn about, what, like, years later in terms of the actual production and writing of the show with the um, time of the Doctor? Uh, The day of the Doctor. Day of the Doctor. Yeah. yeah. So in Day of the Doctor, you know, we learned that on the the last day of the time war, the supposed last day of the time war, the Doctor uses a, a mystical box device, which would guarantee the destruction of the Daleks, but will also wipe out uh, the Time Lords as well, because he can't contain the power that he's about to unleash. And so to have that choice reflected and, and happening again here, just on like maybe like a slightly smaller scale, obviously, um, is a, a really interesting way of sort of hinting and laying some groundwork for what we know is going to be coming in the future with this character. And I do, you're right, that that image of him kind of alone, uh, because, and we're obviously jumping ahead a bit here, but like pretty much, well, not, not pretty much, everybody except Rose dies trying to defend uh, Station or satellite fire from the Daleks. Yeah. Like Linda, Linda dies, Jack dies. It's, it's the exact opposite of justice. Once everybody lives, it's like, no, no, everybody dies. Um, and it, it's, it should be, be more affecting than it is, but we, we can get to that. Um, and so to have by the end, uh, cause he sent Rose back in the TARDIS back to earth so he can protect her. And so he's just entirely on his own in this control room, talking to Daleks about, uh, does he have the, the strength to end the war essentially um and yeah it's it's a really effective moment and and it is the peak of his arc it's interesting you say that it should be more affecting than it is all the characters deaths and everybody dies because i think that the one of the really interesting parts of this story is um that you know as you said everyone dies but it's just everyone dies one after the other like there's the people on the bottom floor and then linda and then the programmers and then jack finally is the last person to die is the last stand and it's a very um unusually brutal kind of caves of androzani kind of uh story to tell and i think that's probably why you feel like it's unaffecting because it's like it's just wearing you down by that ending by the to the point where where the doctor says you know i'm a coward and basically gives up and you're thinking oh my god are they are they choosing to die it totally makes sense um the other part of this episode obviously that's really, really good, um, focuses on Rose. One of the, the really good turning points in this episode is um, the Doctor and Rose have this really nice conversation where, you know, they talk about, she asks him, you know, can't we just go back in time and change it so this never happened? And the Doctor explains why they can't do that. But then he says, you know, we could also run away. We could leave and, and never, and, you know, leave history to take its course. And she says, you know, you'll never do that. But then he also says, it never even occurred to you that we could do that. And you get a nice moment when you realise that they they really are meant for one another. But then the Doctor at that same time realises they can't keep Rose there. So they send her back in the TARDIS. Um, and then there's that really nice hologram scene, which maybe you can talk about, James. Yeah, um, and, and to your point about that um, scene where the two of them are on the ground and he's building the bomb and they're having a chat, um, it, it struck me in that moment how much I would miss seeing the two of them together because that moment is essentially the last time that you get 
like a proper uninterrupted scene with the two of them having a chat. Mm. And while I've obviously had my major issues with Rose's characterization across this season, which is going to culminate in a big way at the end of this episode, um, I do genuinely adore their chemistry and their dynamic. And, you know, I, I obviously prefer it when it's a bit more platonic um, based. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's a real bummer that um, this is the last scene that they get to properly share like this. And so he puts her back in the TARDIS. Um, the TARDIS whips her back to present day London. And there is a hologram message from him that's essentially saying, hey, it's one of those, if you're reading this, I'm dead kind of messages. Um, or like, or I'm about to die and I'm putting you out of harm's way. Um, and he has these really, to Russell T Davies's credit, it's kind of very poetically written the way that he discusses what should happen next. You know, he says you know, when you get back to earth, leave the TARDIS, leave it on, on a corner street or, or whatever, let it rot, just let it fade away into history, um, is a really tragic image to conjure about the potential end point of such a, a majestic ship, mm. essentially. Mm. And he has a really nice line where for some reason, the hologram turns his head to look at her and he's like, live a good life, kid, mm. you know, like, and, you know, go off and essentially just be happy and, and, and live without me kind of thing. And it's a really nice ending, um, a potential ending, right? But then obviously what we know about Rose's character means that there was no reality in which she was going to accept this because uh, I, th I think we've pretty firmly established by this point that Rose genuinely does not want to be back on Earth. <laughs> no. And uh, <laughs> you're, I know the line you're thinking of, which is the one where Mickey says, you know, is there nothing here worth staying for? And she's like, nope, nothing. Not at all. Not a thing. No, fuck her. Get out of here. Yeah, it's it's a bit rough because she goes and she meets up with uh, with her mom. Well, Mickey comes running again um, and kind of completely like. There's no indication that Boomtown has happened at all. Like at the end of Boomtown, Mickey sees her crying and kind of looking for him and is like, nah, fuck it. I'm out. I'm done. And he walks away. And then we start and then we get to Parting of the Ways and he's just like, oh, I heard the the ship. What's up? You're like, oh, Mickey. <laughs> Have some self-respect. Um, exactly. So that, that's a bit frustrating for someone who does want to see Mickey maybe come into his own a bit. But um, yeah, like she she gets she's back on Earth. She she's back with Mickey and with um, uh, Jackie. And they go out and they have like they're having hot chips, which is a nice callback to End of the World again. Um, and they're sitting there, and she like Rose. Billy Piper's performance in Bad Wolf does nothing for me. Billy Piper in Parting of the Ways is top of her game. She is crushing it here. Hmm. Uh, she gets this really great empowering speech where, you know, she essentially says to them, like, he showed me a better way of living. And it's not about the traveling or the aliens or like the fun adventure stuff. It's about, and what she's saying is it's about helping people. It's about using your life to better other people. And it's a really great moment for her. It's very cathartic for us to see her kind of fully realize what it is that she gets out of adventuring with the Doctor. And it's not just the impulses of a teenager to go on an adventure. It's her becoming a young woman who genuinely gives a shit about people. And that's really wonderful. But then, yeah, we get that scene where they're... they're Essentially, she thinks to herself, well, if I can bust open the TARDIS and look into the heart of it, if it can turn Margaret back into an egg, it can send me back to the Doctor. And it's like, yeah, sure. Whatever, Deus Ex Machina, do what you're going to do, Russell T, you write the story. Um, and in the process of this, Mickey essentially calls her out and is like, <clears throat> you could just stay here. You could live a life 
that he could never live. And that is a recurring theme that we've seen because there was that bit in Father's Day where the doctor says, you know, you two, when he's talking to the married couple, you get to live a life I could never have. You know, street corner at 2am, hot chips, getting drunk, that kind of stuff. And so Mickey's essentially making that case to her, like, hey, if you leave us now, you might never get another chance at a normal happy life again. And she delivers that just death blow of... No, there's nothing left for me here. Absolutely nothing. And doesn't even look at him. And it's just so cruel. Mm. It is unnecessarily cruel. And I was struck by how um, mean it is. But also in that moment, you, as you say, um, it really solidifies that actually everything about Rose from now is geared towards the Doctor. And that fuels her action in this episode, which is to get back to him. Is to get back to the Doctor no matter what. Try anything do whatever to get back to him. Um, <clears throat> which I think in retrospect is actually a really bad character motivation. <laughs> and I know that this is um, me saying uh, Rose, the defender of Rose, but um, yeah, even I'm not sure I can defend this because um, it, it just, it struck me as very dated to have a companion who, is so doe-eyed over the Doctor as to be, literally not be able to envisage life beyond them. I find that, mm. like, I know that one of Russell T. Davies' like, great traits as a writer is tragedy. Like, he he knows tragedy inside out, and he really knows how to wring a, like, a tragic moment out of all of the energy that it's got. Um, it just comes with that... It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because then it comes with the opposite... Well, the... Um, the effect of that is that you, the characters have to be so earnestly pointed towards someone thing that they, that to lose it when they do eventually lose it, it makes it a powerful moment, but um, means that they have no motivation beyond that other person. And I find that. Yeah. Well, it's like everything is sacrificed at the altar of the one core concept of their character. Mm. Um, And that's, it can be effective. And, and like I was just saying about that speech that she has when they're in the diner, like there are flashes of a more fully realized Rose here. One who simultaneously loves the doctor, but also loves who she gets to be because of the doctor. Um, and that is obviously brushing right up against the edge of everything that I love about Clara. And so I sympathize to a degree there. Um, but like you said, the problem is that she becomes almost singularly focused on him and any flashes of that woman that I'm talking about that Rose could be, it just kind of washes away amid what happens to Rose next, Um, which is a a massive thing that we're we're just about to dive into. The one thing I want to touch on before we do that though, is her scene with Jackie. Yes, um, I do. I love that scene. It's so in this particular one, Rose, uh, Basically, Jackie tells her to walk away from the TARDIS and the Doctor and just shut the door. And she says, no, I can't do that. The Doctor would never do that. And he's more wonderful than you think he is because he took me to see my dad. And you see Jackie's brain just kind of like go, that's, you know, don't say that. That's, please don't say that. And she's like, I went to dad. I stood there while he died. I held his hand and you saw me. You saw me from a distance. Um, And that's how good he is. And I love that because like, that's the power of sci-fi, right? That's the power of time travel and what Doctor Who does so well. And when it uses time travel to tell a very human story and get a very human reaction as well. Um, and the idea that, you know, Jackie 
is now in that in that scene Jackie is like thinking back in that scene knowing that she saw her daughter in the past like it's just so affecting and the way she screams at her stop it just stop it is like I'm getting tears thinking about it <laughs> no it, it's good and it's I, I think as long as you're willing to put in sort of the, the the mental gymnastics to understand how Jackie goes from that to ultimately helping Rose get back to him, I think there's a lot of really good subtle stuff going on there because it takes her being confronted with such an enormous personal example of the power of of what Rose is now essentially and what she's capable of because it doesn't matter that Rose you know foiled World War Three or you know is is bringing aliens back or like it none of that other stuff that's happened in the season shifted how Jackie ultimately feels about the Doctor until Rose presents her with hey he put me there for the most traumatic experience of your life and subsequently something that would define my life um and that's why i can't let this go and i do like that you know she runs out she's like she completely rejects it and the next time we see her she's you know bringing the truck in to kind of help them open up the tardis and you're like oh i guess you obviously had some thinking while you were away um and i'm sad that we didn't get any of her interior stuff during that process Hmm. um again i don't know where you'd fit it in parting of the ways and again to bad wolf's problem all the stuff that we've been talking about in Parting of the Ways deserves two episodes to be explored. And so it just sucks that we never got that with, with Jackie here. That is a, a recurring problem with Jackie as well, obviously, as we've talked about in this season. But it is a really good mother-daughter moment, and it's it's just a really good character moment. It's it's good. It's genuinely really, really good. <laughs> totally. Um, and it really makes those scenes worth it to be able to mirror the future and the past together which I think this episode's doing maybe subconsciously as a lot as well, is <clears throat> presenting mirrors of one another with the, you know, the lighter bad wolf and the darker parting of the ways and, and this stuff that you're talking about, um, like it all makes it feel like it's intentional and tied together. Um, so yeah, I really like those present day scenes as well, but I think we do need to talk about the finale, the finale, the, the very last moment the moment yeah um yeah so they bring the truck in they manage to rip open the console of the tardis rose stares into it tardis doors slam shut she leaves her mother and her boyfriend standing on the street completely unaware of if she's going to live or not and she flies back and interrupts a moment which uh between what is it the emperor dalek and the doctor the doctor has essentially prepared his big bomb thing um, in the process of trying to decide if he's going to pull the trigger or not. And this is a plot point that I need to just add in here so that our later conversations make more sense. There is a subsequent little side plot about how the Dalek fleet has descended onto Earth and is essentially obliterating entire continents. Um, and it's an incalculable amount of death. Uh, we, we obviously don't know how many people are down there because these, these two episodes don't bother really building up a concept of where humanity's at in terms of its numbers or distribution across the globe or anything like that. But the point is the Daleks are blowing up Earth. The Doctor has the option to stop it by uh, wiping everybody out. And unlike at the end of the Time War, this time he chooses to take the coward's option as the Daleks describe it. Yes, which it should be made um, clearer maybe is that the, the, the coward option is in Dalek language. It's not in our language. It's not in Time Lord language. To be a coward is to refuse to kill. Um, and so when the Doctor is saying, you know, you know, when the Emperor is saying, would you, what would you rather be, coward or killer? Uh, and he says coward. It's not as defeatist or hopeless as what the word would suggest. 
No, no, for sure. I do think that there is an, uh, you run into a slight issue here with the fact that the, the way that it's presented of the Daleks descending onto earth and wiping everybody out already, you're kind of like, okay, so by choosing the quote unquote coward option here, the doctor essentially dooms the galaxy to Dalek rule so that he can make peace with who he is internally. And I do think that is a really good tension and drama point that the episode just completely skips over because then Rose comes in. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think it ever views the idea that the doctor, like, yes, it is frustratingly unclear what's actually happening to earth in these, in this episode. Um, But I have a suspicion that uh, most of humanity is dead by this point anyway. So the doctor, the doctor's actions would actually only hurt him and the, and the Daleks really. And it's odd that he would, now I'm thinking about it. It's odd that he would abstain from that moment. And it's just, it's it's a bit messy. It is a bit messy when you, when you consider the fact that actually the more satisfying ending would be the doctor about to kill and having Rose stop him. Because that is the pattern that we have seen established this season, which is, you know, the, and what the show is so earnestly trying to tell us, which is that the doctor is on his own is a dangerous thing, but with a human by his side um, is capable of great good. Um, Yeah. But then obviously that gets a bit muddled because Rose isn't Rose when she comes back. She is something else. Yeah. She's uh, yeah. So, the t- <laughs> okay, so the Doctor chooses the coward's option. He's not going to do it. And then, uh, you know, we hear the TARDIS landing noise. TARDIS pops back in, doors fly open, gold light spills out everywhere. And Rose emerges in, like, full X-Men Dark Phoenix glory. She is flowing hair, glowing eyes, completely kind of disaffected. It's... It's a great image. And then it goes into some really interesting places because essentially she has absorbed the power of the TARDIS. She's absorbed the time vortex and it is residing, I guess, alongside her consciousness and it creates the bad wolf. Yes, the bad wolf. I am the bad wolf. I create myself. Yes, she creates herself, which again, to your point about how interesting time travel stuff can be in sci-fi, I really like as a concept because it ties in this whole, you know, in in various episodes throughout this season, you know, they've been seeing or hearing the term bad wolf in one way or another. And so to have the explanation of that be Rose absorbs time itself and makes sure that she sees the words bad wolf across history to guide her to the point where she needs to go back and make sure she gets to that point is a really interesting little time loop. It's the, like the bootstrap paradox that they explore much later in a Capaldi episode. I really, really love that stuff. Um, and then with that though, she gains godlike powers essentially. Yes. So <clears throat> I guess the only, like it's the criticism you could level at this ending, which has been said a thousand times over is that it's a deus ex machina. Um, and if you don't know what that means, it's uh, essentially trans Latin for God out of the machine um, and is a way of saying that your solution to your plot or the very the, the finale of your story, um, it can only come about because of a, a seemingly uh, arbitrary, not upset, that's the wrong word, because of uh, an, an element that's introduced out of the blue. 
um, the God, the idea that God literally steps down from the from the heavens and and fixes everything, and that is literally what's happening here because you know Rose is a god and she steps down to fix everything. Now, this isn't to say that it's necessarily a bad thing though, because sometimes God out of the machine can be a very uh, uh, highly um, thematically. Um, satisfying and appropriate ending and so the only kind of criticism that i would level at this is that we the only setup that the tardis even has this capability is uh the previous episode boomtown where margaret gets converted to an egg by it and that was only an episode ago so I just I, I just wish that like it, a little bit more work had been done to establish that the TARDIS was able to even do this thing. Because um, I know we get mention of telepathic circuits way back in the end of the world, but that does not uh, suggest that it has this kind of power. Um, so yeah, that would be my only kind of like thing about this scene. But otherwise, I mean, I we've talked about this scene before and you said how affected you were by uh seeing rose like that yeah definitely because it's um it's i mean she's called specifically the bad wolf and she calls herself bad wolf because i think that what she is in that moment is one part rose one part tardis essentially like she is rose's desires mixed with the raw power of of a god essentially and it creates this new thing um and because of that, we get a lot of Rose that is quite heightened, you know, and there's that really incredible line that I'm not going to try and do myself. I'm just going to play it right now. You are tiny. I can see the whole of time and space, every single atom of your existence, and I divide them. And yeah, she's got these tears streaming down her face and she goes up against the Dalek Emperor and just obliterates him like he is absolutely nothing the the daleks this grand threat that's been built up across this entire episode is nothing in her way and i do think that is unfortunately once again another example of like um the the onus of of the end of a story being put away from the doctor again especially because it is so specifically i mean it's genocide like she just wipes them out of existence right and the doctor's like kind of just chill with it. He's like, oh, well, this is a much better ending, I guess, you know? It's- yeah. Yeah. Cause like the alternative would have been that the, like, you know, the doctor just like lets the Daleks win basically. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> uh, it's funny that you uh, say that. And that, oh, there's also been a recurring thing, right? It's like very often in Russell T Davies scripts and you know, <laughs> I like him, you know, I defend him. He's a great social justice warrior, all that kind of stuff. But yes, like of his three, three of his major scripts so far have had these similar kind of endings where the the decision is taken out of the Doctor's hands by other people and the ending happens separate to them. This is probably yeah. the best example of that though, only because of how it's reversed later. But there's a moment that happens before that, that I think you're really keen to discuss. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> there is something that we're going to need to talk about here. Listeners, and I am... James has been talking about this for ages. He is so keen to talk about this. <laughs> I, I am very, 
very unhappy with something here. But I, I do, before we get into that, I, I will say this much. Um, as a culmination of the rose that she could be, uh, which we have seen across multiple episodes now where you get those flashes of, you know, she's independent, she's caring, uh, she has a desire for more out of her life. As a culmination of that rose, this first half of the bad wolf showing up is is very, very effective mm. because she gets to implement this huge change in the galaxy. A small side note, I think it would have been interesting if maybe we had seen a continuation of her compassion from Dalek here in that she, it like, you know, she says, like, like that quote that I played, you know, she sees every single one of their atoms. I think there is an interesting moral question about maybe if she rewrote them to be compassionate and caring. But that's a much bigger, more, much yeah. more ambitious story. <laughs> totally. Um, that would have been uh, so interesting now you said it. Yeah, it, it just yeah. But anyway, anyway, that, that's that's basically fan fiction at this point. So I'm sorry about that. Um, but uh, as 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 I said, as a combination of these things with Rose, um, having her, so she, she disintegrates all the Daleks. The Doctor stands up and he's like, "This power will destroy you. You need to let it go." And she specifically says, "How could I possibly let this go?" And I think it's the perfect culmination of this this rose that has always desired for much, much more than her little humdrum human life. She gets the powers of a God and tears streaming down her face, even though she's self-aware that it is killing her still can't let it go because of how much she desires something more for herself is, I mean, I got goosebumps even just saying that I'm so into it. I love it so, so much. Hmm. And so to immediately follow that up with um, the culmination of the other rose that's been going on here is it, it crushed me. Like I, I remember watching it and I <laughs> the doctor stands up and he says to her, I know what you need. You need a doctor. And he walks over. And as he was walking over, I was in my room and I was saying to myself, don't do it. Please don't do it. Please don't do this. And he kisses her. I was like, fuck. <laughs> like, <laughs> This is how this is ending. It, it just, it, it shattered my heart. But one, the line, you need a doctor, is <laughs> borderline porn. Like, that is just the cheesiest shit I've heard. And then to have him kiss her as a means of drawing the power out of her, when it just, it moves between their eyes anyway. So it didn't have to be a kiss. It it just felt so skeezy and, and forced in and heteronormative climax i just i like viscerally rebelled against it and i i have been dying to get into how much i hate it <laughs> jesus and um look when you say it like that i feel like i don't have uh, a position to defend this choice from um especially when you say like i when even though that effect shot of the transfer happening is really quite bad and you it's kind of obscured what you what's actually happening because of the light from the TARDIS behind them um a rare misstep from director Joe Ahern um <laughs> but yeah like obviously like you say the, the energy transfers between their eyes so there doesn't they don't need to kiss like you say but if I were to defend this choice it would be on the grounds that this season has had somewhat of an identity issue when it comes to what it wants Rose and the Doctor's relationship to be. And there obviously have been times where it's been platonic, where they've been friends, where he's been a father figure. But the predominant kind of 
strain or um, a trait that they share. Not that's the wrong word either. Either the the predominant relationship that they share that has been emerging over time uh, is that they are lovers. Lovers is maybe a too strong a word, but definitely romantic for sure. And the real kind of a case in point for this is um, the Empty Child and Dr. Dancer's two-parter. Because that one, as we've touched on in our episode on it, was, a, was you know, specifically structured around sex, around sexuality, around sexuality and their mores and whatnot. Um, and in that episode, there's a real, there's something set up there with the Doctor and Jack kind of, you know, the Doctor feels threatened by Jack, by his inherent sexuality. But... At the same time, you know, Rose is saying to the doctor, you know, I don't, I don't um, trust Jack because uh, he dances. I trust him because he reminds me of you. So you've already, you're setting up there the idea that what Rose wants is like uh, a doctor who fucks, basically. Um, and they have like, you know, because the dance metaphor is used and they dance in two separate scenes in that, in the Doctor Dances episode. Um, with Rose, you know, openly like challenging him to, you know, show me your moves. Like she wants him. Like that's exactly how it's coded and played as. So for them to kiss here feels very wrong, sure, but absolutely where it was always heading. And I'm going to step away from the mic now and let you have your moment. <laughs> no, look, I um, I the dancing metaphor is the one that I do absolutely have to concede. I I think that there are choices made in the filming and the cinematic language of if you compare the way she dances with Jack in front of the in front of Big Ben and then the way that she dances with the Doctor at the end. One of them feels like a date. The other one feels like somebody dancing with their dad. I'm gonna let you choose which one you think was which, but <laughs> um, it's. I would almost look at that as the exception that proves the rule because I think in all the other episodes it is a muddled tone about which one they're actually going for. So you've got other examples like Father's Day where it is very explicitly a father figure friendship role and I don't think one cancels out the other and that's why like I'm saying like with the Bad Wolf stuff it is it's dual culminations of dual arcs here because there is there are two roses one of them is the rose that gets to kind of exist outside of what they need a woman to be. And the other one is the every woman that they need her to be. Um, and that they have to come together in this exact moment is like you said, it's inevitable in a sense, there is a momentum behind the choices that were being made here. And especially with what we know comes in next season, mm. the idea of a doctor and Rose romance is 100% baked into maybe the concepts of the characters but I stand by the shaky execution throughout the season and at times execution that actively goes against that characterization, culminating in a moment with a man who looks older than her actual father looked, laying a kiss on her in such a skeezy way while she isn't even entirely herself and that she doesn't go on to then remember, I find particularly gross. <laughs> uh, yes, and it's on that front that I really don't think we could defend it <clears throat> as a choice because yeah like um I was trying to sort of think about like you know is it Rose in this moment or is it not Rose in this moment um 
and I think there's a case to be made that, you know, she is somewhat conscious of what she's doing in that time. Oh, for sure. But yeah. it's then removed from her head, all of that knowledge. And she doesn't really, uh, you assume that at some point the doctor would have filled her in on what she did, but like uh, immediately afterwards, she's forgotten what happened. So yeah, the optics around it and uh, the consent issue is, makes it a really dated moment. Yeah. And like, I, I do specifically use uh, like the word heteronormative very specifically oh, here totally. because, you know, it, it is very much a product of its time in the sense that, you know, if you're, if you're, your story can't possibly culminate with the boy and the girl just being friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that's not satisfying for audiences. They mm. have to kiss. They have to have some form of, well, they've got to be in love. It's like love can be so many more things. And that's, and uh, again, Specifically, I think why I adore Clara so much is because of the choice of having Capaldi be such an older actor, they couldn't fall back on the crux of heteronormative kind of crap. And so they had to build up a genuine platonic love between them, which turned into like this very much found family thing. And you can see little bits of that with Rose, but then you also get the other little bits of this very like straight love story stuff. Mm. And so I don't think your point is entirely invalid um, because I, I, I do agree that this is and inevitability on some level. Um, it, it's just that, again, and this goes to our point about Rose across the entire season, mm. it's a very uneven characterization. And so to have her culminating moment also be uneven, I, I guess is, it just is what it is. Uh, yes, it's not what we would have preferred, but we'll take it. Yeah, because you know, the Bad Wolf stuff absolutely works for me. And having her come in and be positioned against a Dalek who sees himself as a god, and she specifically calls him a false god, beautiful stuff oh. like that's everything i want from doctor who it's, it's mythological it's grand mm. it's it's exciting it's so um, good i really like that as well and one of the notes that i wrote here is um that the one thing i really do appreciate about rtd and as a writer is how biblical and spiritual he can be sometimes with his themes and to have essentially what's happening here is like god is stepping down to smite the devil the emperor of the daleks and like mm. this the sheer scale of that is something that i really really vibe with um, yeah, it, it rocks. It rocks. <laughs> it does rock. Um, and it's, 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 you said about the devil there, it kind of sparked an idea in me. And this is much more of, again, a surface level aesthetic thing, like with the Margaret stuff, actually. Um, having the Emperor Dalek say to the Doctor, you know, I create, what does that make you? Essentially positioning yeah. God and the devil in that dynamic is really interesting. It's so um, good. And, it is, and it's something that we've talked about, obviously, with this episode. The problem, though, is that none of those threads are actually explored. It's all just kind of paid lip service to. Um, like, it's the idea of big ideas, and it doesn't pursue any of them. Mm. Um, and it's just it's, it's just a bit of a bummer, because if you cut off Endgame and you replace that with, you know, everything about the Daleks' ideology, how that's impacting the humans with their gladiatorial-type games and stuff, like, there's so much you could have done here, and it just kind of... It, it doesn't stumble at the end because I do think the ending is the most effective and an important part of the story. And I do largely quite like parting of the ways. Um, it's just, it's again, it's that you see the potential of what could have happened here and it just bums you out that it's not there. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I just, I simply agree with you. Um, Isn't this a nice change? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, honest to God, it is. <laughs> um, yeah. Look. We've taken a rocky ride to get to this ending here, but um, I think it is a, such an appropriate 
place to finish Christopher Eccleston's uh, Doctor. Um, and one of the best kind of um, assertions, uh, uh, sorry, assessments of what kind of Doctor he was came from the AV Club's review of this uh, episode by Alistair Wilkins, which uh, where I think they he describes this Doctor as like essentially a protracted regeneration, um, healing over, like a healing regeneration over the trauma and the war and horrors of the time war and losing his people. Like this doctor is just like basically been the personification of all of that. And I really like that interpretation. And it also like makes David Tennant's casting, which we'll get to in a minute, um, all the more significant because of just how different and chirpy and young and fresh and seemingly guilt, ridden not guilt ridden i uh, was the opposite of that um free of guilt <laughs> that they are this but this particular ending that happens which is such a beautifully shot and curated moment with the doctor after he takes the energy out of rose standing there with like all the power flowing through him and his eyes are glowing and he just kind of stands upright and his shoulders go back and he breathes it back into the tardis he's like giving it life again and then the music swelling with that beautiful score that I love and the, the doors shut and everything's just still. And then he steps back and he's like, oof, okay, I'm, I'm going to die now. <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, I can't see it ending any other way, you know? No, to end no for sure. Um, maybe uh, just a small note that I, I want to touch on before we dive into that last scene, because I think after that last scene, we're going to be on a, a nice downward slope with just compliments from that point out basically uh, yeah um but i i do briefly want to touch on and i, I would be remiss i tore apart boomtown so thoroughly for failing to address its core questions that i can't not give the same treatment to parting of the ways no matter how much i i enjoy parting of the ways mm. it's yet another ending where the doctor blows up the status quo and pisses off in his tardis and ostensibly the point of these two episodes was addressing the fact that he does that too often and it creates problems and then it's just completely abandoned by the ending <laughs> oh totally totally and i don't think i think they really don't want you to notice that like um yeah that hasn't escaped my notice either but i i am i am much more forgiving of that than you are um, yeah for sure but the other thing which i thought you were going to talk about but you didn't um that we should probably just like give a brief mention to is the other companion of this episode, which is Captain Jack. You, like, you wrote in our notes, I feel nothing for Jack. He's just such a nothing in these in these two episodes. Mm. Like, he, he exists... Okay, in an odd way, I kind of respect it because he does essentially just fulfil the role of, like, a Bond girl, basically. You know, mm. he's really nice to look at, or rather an earlier Bond girl, let's say, because he's really nice to look at. And then he ultimately is just kind of there to run around being skimpy and all like, well, howdy, I'm charming. I'm going to shoot things. And then I'm going to die unceremoniously. It's like, cool. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I yeah. think you are charming, I guess, but it's funny. He adds nothing. It's funny because like essentially their, their arc for lack of a better word, uh, is that they were a con man, but now they're a hero. But you see that play out and it's like he woke up one day a hero, basically. Um, and you don't see that like transition and the development of that character into that other kind of character. It just kind of like happens. The other thing I find also quite 
off and weird about him in this episode. It's not actually something that is his fault, but it's just the idea of a companion who dies in combat. It's so grim. Um, and, you know, usually they're afforded some kind of grace, but he just is just like blasted by a Dalek and that's it. And then gets unceremoniously dumped by the end of the story and he's just like left to fend for himself. It's just like, it's so... Yeah. You know, I know I know that we have our problems with Jack. I definitely have my problems with Jack. And I, I think this episode is just another example of why he should never have been a companion or a recurring character at all. Um, but like, they really... I've said this already, but they really done him dirty this episode. Yeah, I, I just don't think Russell uh, is particularly concerned about the trimmings of the of this story, um, and so because of that, they end up feeling exactly like trimmings. There's just not much going on, I, and it's the same with Mickey and Jackie. It's you know you do get that really great scene with Jackie, but on the whole, it's very much. They're kind of an afterthought to things, especially with Mickey again, like I said, about there being no real through line here with his characterization. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, and it's like, like with all the Daleks invading uh, the station and killing all the people, like you said before about how it kind of beats you down over time. And I think uh, the flip side problem of that is that because they're just nameless kind of news station workers or, or whatever, it just, you don't feel much of anything. And so by the time that they're blowing up the literal planet earth you're just kind of like yeah but when are we getting back to what you actually obviously give a shit about russell (laughs) yeah look uh it is what it is (laughs) it is it is so let let us get back to what he actually cared about because it, it does show in this last scene yeah um i think it's one of the best like last little doctor moments that there has ever been to be honest. And I don't know if that is like, because obviously Russell, so Russell T had two shots at writing this kind of scene. Um, One of which was very long and protracted. And that's not a criticism of David Tennant's ending, by the way, which is, we're definitely going to get up to, but it is uh, exceptionally like labored as opposed to this, which is a quick two minute exchange. And I really like this. And I like, I feel like the power of it is that it would have had to have been written in such a short amount of time because they didn't know that Chris Freckleston was, you know, not going to return. I know that, you know, a lot of plans were being made for the second season when they knew there was a second season uh, to have Chris Freckleston as, you know, recurring. Like there's no reason why he would have left in this episode. Um, So I imagine this scene would have had to been written in, you know, quite a quick amount of time. And I think that's to its benefit. Because there's no time to dwell and there's no time to labor or like think about this moment. It's just the doctor, you know, like just saying, Hey, I was really good. See ya. <laughs> and it's great. It is. It is good. And like the specific line of Rose, you were fantastic. And you know what? So was I is a incredible last line for him. And like, it plays nicely on his whole like little fantastic catchphrase. It's, it's just really, like you said, it's tight it's to the point. Um, it's affecting. I think both of them act the shit out of that moment. It's um. It's just. It's a. It's nice to see the Doctor go out on his own terms, essentially, um, because to your point about David Tennant's uh, transition, it is. You know, it's the definitive example of he doesn't want to regenerate, and, and so to see this version of, of that under Russell T Davies is. It's just good. It's good. It's really good. Um. And it's, it's something you've just brought up that I hadn't considered before is the idea that this is a doctor who 
who has been, you know, I don't want to say who hates themselves because that's, like I said at the top of this episode, um, you know, that's a very loaded word and it's very emotionally charged. And I don't know if this is a Doctor Who necessarily loathes their own existence as such, but they are definitely beaten and traumatised. And so for their last lines to be saying, you know, I am good, like I was good and I will continue to be good, just feels so triumphant. And I think that's great. I think that's really great to have a, like, it kind of reminds me a lot of the, what they chose for Matt Smith's last lines where he says, you know, I will never forget when the doctor was me. Cause it, it's, it's not letting yourself, um, it's not letting that moment like turn into tragic, you know, maudlin kind of, um, feelings and emotions. It's, it's, it's saying that this is the end, but this is the end for me, but this story is going on forever. Um, it's great. It's really, really good. It is. And that's something that we've uh, obviously dealt with across multiple incarnations now is the idea that the the face the Doctor chooses and the, 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 the thing he regenerates or they regenerate into rather is uh, subconsciously a choice, right? And so if you view Christopher Eccleston's Doctor as a manifestation of his trauma and depression and, and everything and the guilt he was dealing with, right? having him in his regeneration moment, one, accept it so gracefully, and two, regenerate into a younger man is effectively like a visual representation of of self-forgiveness and Mm. self-love coming back into his life. And so as a culmination of his um, tragedy arc here, really, really great stuff. I, I do think that that raises some really interesting questions about how Capaldi and uh, Whitaker are lined up in terms of their regeneration. And I would, I would so love to get into that right now, but I, I have to stop myself. Yeah. We will get there eventually. Um, and yeah, then we get David Tennant. Yeah. David Tennant. Uh, I just wrote in my notes. It's so funny to be writing these notes, um, knowing in, in complete full knowledge of what's actually going to happen and trying to be like, Ooh, I'm really won over by David Tennant. Like, <laughs> like what's going to come next? Um, but I did write in my notes. I am won over by him already. Um, like he's just, he's just got it. Uh, he definitely has an element that you want to see nurture and continue. Oh, for sure. Like he, he immediately brings a spark to what's happening. Like you immediately recognize it's a totally new iteration of this character He's young, he's hot, he seems wacky and cool. And you're like, yeah, let's go on an adventure. Like he brings that sense of like wonder into things uh, quite nicely. Whereas I think Christopher Eccleston is more about um, showing others the wonder. Whereas David Tennant, the first moment he steps into that role is like, I am the wonder. <laughs> totally. That's something I had not considered before is just how much... Um, so maybe at this point, listener, we should say that we've actually, we we got a little bit excited and watched The Christmas Invasion already before we uh, wrote or, you know, considered talking about it. And like that, oh, we're jumping, I'm jumping ahead of myself now, but like, yeah, there's a scene in that episode where the, like David Tennant is so like a hundred percent commanding and it's like an extended monologue basically, where he's just like swanning about and saying all kinds of crap really. Um, which is so in contrast to David, to sorry, to Chris Reckleson's Doctor, who is somebody who isn't exactly a mastermind or like a behind the scenes kind of like manipulating events, but he's definitely somebody who stands back and takes in the full scope of a scene 
and isn't the first one to speak necessarily or the like even the commander of the room like everything he does as a doctor is so um <sighs> understated really it's something that we've said before but he's more of an observer he's an observer yeah he's he's definitely observe an observer in the traditional sense of who the doctor was as a, as a character initially as somebody who travels in time but doesn't interact like yeah. he he definitely could have fallen into that. Uh, sorry, it dis- does fall into that role. Um, and I guess this is probably a good point at which we should um, just, let's just talk about Chris Freckleston. I'm aware that we're very, we're running a lot of, over time. But yeah, this is, this is a huge episode, folks. So strap in. Good luck. Have fun. <laughs> um, but I mean, I feel like this is the last thing we really need to say for this episode, which is a re- like Chris Freckleston as a doctor. Was he good? Was he not good? What What do we feel about him? I think on the whole, he was he was pretty fantastic. Honestly, it's um, it's yeah, because I mean, a lot of the problems that I have with Rose are directly linked to him, but I never think he is part of the problem, which is a, an interesting bit of mm. uh, magic trick on Russell T Davies's part. I'll say that much. Uh, I, I think that Christopher Eggleston, the way that he embodies that role with an appropriate sense of um, like timidly trying to feel again um, in a very earnest mm. way. And you pair that with the fact that Christopher Eccleston's face is such a goofy dad-like face that you just, you want him to not be in pain or hiding behind that mask anymore. And he really brought that to the role. I, yeah, I, just, I, I really liked him. I, I don't really have huge notes on him. And it's difficult because obviously he only did this one season and it's mm. a real kind of like flash and then you're gone. Um, but with the time that he had, I, I thought he did an, an immaculate job. Yeah, I concur. Um, it is funny to think about like what the continuing adventures of Christopher Eccleston as the doctor would have been like, um, fun fact. I do know that the girl in the fireplace, which is this episode coming up was actually written with him in mind, which is bizarre to think about when you consider just how suited that episode is for David Tennant. Um, but I digress. It, it's funny to, yeah, but to consider that, you know, this was initially, this character, this Doctor was initially envisaged as, like, the ongoing adventures is so funny when you consider just how perfect an arc they have in this one season and probably isn't repeated again until uh, Peter Capaldi in terms of, like, like um, the structure of their journey from beginning to end feels totally um, intentional. Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's like they were specifically cast and written with one very, like, tight character arc in mind. And you're right, it doesn't show with the two younger Doctors in the middle. And I think part of that is because, you know, casting younger men in the role does give them less of that kind of, like, um, weathered gravitas, you know? And, And that's not to say that, obviously, David Tennant brings a huge amount of gravitas to the role and same with uh, Matt Smith in, in his own particular way. But they are much more embedded in a kind of like uh, slightly more youthful arrogance, whereas what you got with Eccleston and what you really get with Capaldi is a sense of like like tragedy and pain that runs deep, but also uh, yeah. that sense of wonder also runs quite deep for them as well. And yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to go even further from what you're saying, there's also a sense with those two younger doctors in between that they were cast and written 
with the intention that this, to give the impression that this could go anywhere, that there isn't a set line or story that they're necessarily trying to tell with them. But with Eccleston and with Capaldi, they're on a train from the very beginning that only has one ending, basically. Yeah. One destination. Yeah. Um, And I think with that incredibly long tangent, we are pretty much done talking about season one of Doctor Who. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I feel like we're at a really good point with Rose, uh, Jackie and Mickey that I'm keen to see them go on. I'm glad this isn't the end of their story. And there's definitely more to do with them. So we, I don't think it's fair to sort of wrap up them as such because their story is ongoing. But um, for Chris Eccleston in particular, um, yeah, he brought the house down. He was a great doctor. He, he, he almost is a great would-be doctor because he, the, the potential of where he could have gone, but that's beside the point now. Um, and that does bring us to the end of season one. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, this is something that we're just gonna, we're going to quickly dive into before we grade and wrap up here, because um, it is worth noting that, you know, he could have been a lot more, and he stepped away very, very publicly. Let's say um, he chose to remove himself from a what he has gone on to describe as essentially a work environment that he found very incompatible with himself. Um, and the, the granted, these are only quotes that sort of came out over the past couple of years. So he was quite quiet about the specifics for a while. Yes, he was quiet. Um, but that was because, uh, when he left, he was essentially sort of told, this is the story that we're going to tell about why you're leaving, but you, but you know, that is, we now know that that's not the truth that, you know, the story went out that he didn't want to be typecast, but he has since come back and said, no. That wasn't the whole truth. Yeah, exactly. And he's, he's gone on to say that, like, he really loved the role. And I think that does show in his performance. And it makes it all the more tragic that um, he essentially got blacklisted from working in the UK after this. Because, I mean, I guess you don't cross the BBC is, is the lesson mm-hmm. here. Um, and he, he's gone on to say that he had specific problems with Russell T Davies and two other producers at the time. Uh, who he, he describes as having, like, quote unquote, like, political differences with. I, I definitely, I, I'm in the context of, of his mindset and, and what he considers to be political or bureaucratic or red tape or whatever it was that was going on behind backstage, um, there was clearly a work environment that was making him quite uncomfortable. And it's it's just a real bummer that, that this is where we've ended up with his time on the show because he doesn't come back for reunions or anything or he doesn't do anything of the specials. Um and yeah, I, I just find he cuts quite a tragic figure as part of the history of this show, which, you know, has been quite progressive at times. And Russell T Davies being a gay man helming the show is is fantastic and everything. It's just, um, it leaves a sour taste about season one. Yeah. Um, if, oh, I mean, if I could offer a bit of uh, interpretation of what he means when he says political, I have a real suspicion that that refers much more so to the, like you say, the red tape and the politics of the BBC and how they operate, as opposed to the personal politics held by any given producer on the show, um, which are separate from, you know, a work environment and the business and organisation in which you have to work under. Um, mm. 
Oh, absolutely. And like we, when we talked about how we were going to sort of broach this topic, like you, you recommended that I maybe do some research into what, what this guy's sort of political life is like. And he is quite progressive. Um, he's very open about having his own problems with like depression and eating disorders. Like he is very much the socially conscious human being that you sort of want a Doctor Who actor to be. Uh, and so to your point, yeah, I don't think it's a personal politics thing. Um, it's it's just sometimes work environments don't work for people. And mm. it's just, it just sucks. It is because Christopher Eccleston was such a fantastic Doctor. And I would, you know, I think that is really the one, the only kind of like thing that you could do to surprise Doctor Who fans nowadays would be to announce Christopher Eccleston returning as yeah. the Doctor. Like that's the one thing that is just so desired and will never probably happen now. Um, and I hope that he sees that as like a show of how much people love and appreciate him and his character. Um, yeah. As much as, you know, he needs to stay away for his own reasons. Totally get that. Totally necessary. Um, but yeah, we would all be so keen to see him. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's about it. I think totally. we need to deliver our final gradings of the season. A Bad Wolf gets a C. That's about as good as I can say about Bad Wolf. Maybe a C plus for that ending. Maybe a C plus, but otherwise it's not, I'm not hopeful. Uh, and then Parting of the Ways is a, an A in my book, 100%. Yep, that's fair. Um, bad Wolf is, yeah, a C plus for me, I would say. Uh, I think there's some good stuff in there. It's just nowhere near enough. Um, and parting of the ways, uh, I, I am very torn between, no, no, I'm not. I <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you were torn. You <laughs> seemed pretty dead set when you told me what you were going to grade it. Yeah, I know. But then I got to think about the kiss again. Folks, that kiss kills me. It just deflates so much of my love for that episode. And I wish I could move beyond it, but I can't. And that's my reality. So should we, um, grade the season? Oh, I hadn't even considered that. But yes, we absolutely should. Uh, So let's say that Doctor Who, The Revival, Season 1 from James gets a solid B+. I have a feeling on the whole that this season is still an A for me. Let's not not devalue this season. It was the one that got this show back into the the popular zeitgeist. You know, back into the consciousness yeah. of you know the viewing audience. Um, it wouldn't have been as successful if it wasn't for you know Russell T, Billy Piper, and most importantly Chris Freckleston. So you know, credit where it's due. It's an A. It's an A yeah. season from me. Sure, totally. That's totally fine. Okay. Well, with that, as always, um, thank you for listening, everybody. Like we've made it to episode ten. We've made it through a full season. This is very exciting. We're both feeling really good about this going forward. We hope that you folks are as well. Um, again, we're not a huge show, but like we've got like a, a nice core little group that seems to be listening every week, and we really appreciate that. If any of you do want to reach out and just you know have your thoughts on season one read on the show, tell us why I'm wrong about the kiss or why I'm right about the kiss, whatever it is, uh, you can reach out to us uh through the email address twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at twoheartspod, and that is the number two. 
if you would like to just follow either of us on Twitter or Instagram, I am at OMG More James. And I am on uh, Twitter. I'm CJ, by the way. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at CJ McLean underscore. And um, yeah, if you enjoy the show, if you are still enjoying it, you're keeping with us. Thank you for listening this far. Um, feel free to drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. Um, as it helps us grow as an organization. Uh, as I say, as an organization. It's just the two of us. Um, it's not an organization. Um, yeah, that would be great. But um Gosh, it feels weird. We're at the end of season one. We get to talk about season two and David Tennant next week. How amazing. Very exciting, isn't it? And like I say that completely earnestly. There's a reason why we went ahead and watched the next episode already. Like David Tennant is, he's exciting. It's fresh. It's sexy. It's new. Get keen, folks. Yes, indeed. And next week we have a bit of a treat for you all because it won't be a traditional episode. We thought as we are um, reached the end of season one, and it's we've got the chance to do a couple of, you know, fun, flirty kind of episodes. Next week, we're actually going to be tackling a couple of classic Who stories. We are. So, um, obviously, if you've been paying attention to the one classic story that I can't seem to stop bringing up, next week, we are going to be covering Hellbent. What? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> Uh, no, obviously, uh, next week, my classic episode that I'm bringing to the conversation will be Pyramids of Mars. And I am going to be discussing uh, Doctor Who and the Solarians, one of the worst titles, one of the best stories. Out of this world. All right, folks, uh, you have a lovely week. As always, please stay safe, stay happy, live your truth. Until then, bye. See you.